Hi everyone, welcome back to Hypothesis. I'm Amandine. And I'm Gillian. And today we're talking about glycosylation and we're joined by a very special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, hi, I'm Maruna. Um, I study microbiology. I'm in final year. And yeah, I'm not going to be talking about microbiology specifically, but um, instead glycobiology. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, for those who don't know, uh, glycosylation is a post-translational modification. So it's something that's added to like proteins and lipids and other molecules. And specifically, it's adding sugars to these molecules. So um, the glycome is, is all the sugars in a cell. So you might have heard like the genome is like all the genes. Um, uh, but the thing is, the glycome is actually much more complex and diverse than something like proteomics, all the proteins, because there's lots of heterogeneity, which means there's lots of variability between even the same protein can be glycosylated in loads of different ways. Um, and it's actually the most common post-translational modification. 70% um, of proteins in mammals have uh, sugars attached to them, so they're glycosylated. And about 1% of the whole human genome is dedicated to glycosylation. So cool. it's a pretty big deal. Uh, it's something that I think has been understudied for quite a while. So we're going to uh, talk about some of the uh, cool stuff happening in glycobiology. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the way I actually got introduced to glycobiology was through studying mucus uh, within microbiology. So um, specifically mucus in the gastrointestinal tract. Um, so I will just take you through the journey of how I realized that glycobiology is just supreme and it's kind of at the core of everything and yeah so underrated um not spoken about enough yeah also Killian I think you said it was like the most what did you say most common post-translational modification yeah. I don't know if that's true I'm just gonna say really? that I don't know because I looked Wikipedia guys <laughs> Wikipedia told me that phosphorylation could be up there oh so. yeah I know phosphorylation is up there but uh, I, I had lecture notes from a third year lecture where um, the lecturer is a glycobiologist and he said it was but maybe I took it he's down. He's biased, though. He's a glycobiologist. <laughs> yeah, he, he lied. <laughs> we have to do major research to find out which one it is. Anyways, yeah. sorry, I just had to put that out there. Um, yeah, I'm not sure about that. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know either. I literally, <laughs> Wikipedia told me that, so. <laughs> um, well, I'll just, I'm just going to introduce mucus, where, where I began with, with this. Um, so mucus it lines every epithelial membrane in our bodies. Um, so any kind of tube that you can, large tube that you can think of in our bodies, so like our gastrointestinal tract, respiratory tract, urogenital tract, the inner lining of that tube has mucus and its role is protection. It lubricates, it keeps it moist to allow basically the passage of things to be smooth, to prevent abrasion, um, so it's really, really important. Um, and what makes up this mucus are these glycoproteins um, called mucins. So um, mucins are essentially, you can, I really like the analogy of the bottle brush. <laughs> so it, it's like the stick of the bottle brush is the protein core. Yeah. And then the bristles are the sugars. And specifically the sugars of this of these mucins um, are monosaccharides. So there, there's different types of monosaccharides and I should say monosaccharides are like the simplest uh, units of sugar, like the simplest sugars. Yeah. And in, in vertebrates, there's, um, I, I saw that there was like nine, nine monosaccharides oh. in vertebrates. What? And 
like that that form these uh kind of like kind of glycans which are these chains of um of monosaccharides and they can branch can't they it's not just like one singular exactly yeah very like um dendritic Um, uh, (laughs) so yeah they so I should give some examples so like glucose that's classic yeah Uh, galactose classic Classic. (laughs) galactose mannose there's fucose and I first thought I mean I thought that was just like a misspelling of fructose it's not it's a whole different (laughs) thing guys fucose is its own monosaccharide yeah but anyway, so um, yeah, these little sugars, if you think of them as like different shapes, they're like linked together and th- that linkage and like branching is called a glycan. Mm-hmm. And um, if you think about it, a bottle brush does not work if it doesn't have bristles. So a mucin also doesn't work if it doesn't have the sugars. So this was really interesting when I was reading about this. Um, and the more I was reading about it, the more I realized that it's not just mucins that ha- that are glycosylated that have these sugars on um, on on this protein core, and it's really like a very general thing in vertebrates. Um, like every single cell is glycosylated. I'm and um, I was listening to this um, professor she's a chemist and a glycobiologist her name's Carolyn Bertozzi I think she deserves a shout out (laughs) I think she teaches in Berkeley or she did I'm not sure these YouTube videos were 10 years old but they were still (laughs) so relevant um so she was explaining how if you had like if you were in a little jet pack or like a little like I don't know plane that's like at a cellular um scale and you were flying over your cells it would look like you're flying over like a forest and the trees are actually these glycans or Mm. these these sugars so I thought that was really interesting um yeah so yeah I I really I really uh, enjoy glycosylation yeah I was looking into it a bit because I suppose this is the first time I'd really I mean I'd heard of it before but it was just like a thing in passing like yeah glycosylation is a thing whatever it's a post-translational modification who cares kind of but yeah it turns out it is actually really important and so each obviously proteins are made up of amino acids um and it's only certain amino acids i found that could be glycosylated and i think when you learn about phosphorylation that's sort of the post-translational modification that everyone knows it's only okay now could, could get it wrong is it threonine serine and something else tyrosine yeah. tyrosine uh, is it yeah. okay it's, whatever i'm obviously I, think, I can't remember which ones they are. Definitely serine yeah. for sure. Serine and threonine for sure. Threonine. Um, for, for O-glycosylation. Yeah, for O-glycosylation. That's, that's my point. So for phosphorylation, there's three amino acids that are always phosphorylated. No others are. And for glycosylation, it's the same. There's only specific amino acids that get glycosylated. And there, there's two different types of glycosylation. There's N. Is it N type and O? Yep. The, that's it the difference is just where the sugar is added whether it's added to the o or to the n which is an oxygen and a nitrogen that's it Um, yeah yeah. okay a few i did chemistry in first year that's it (laughs) but yeah so the asparagine is the amino acid that gets n glycosylated and serine and threonine are the ones that get o glycosylated and i just thought that was kind of interesting and because obviously i knew from phosphorylation that it's only certain amino acids that get this modification but i didn't realize that it was the same in this case um, and that it's a covalent attachment of the carbohydrate 
so pretty pretty permanent <laughs> um and another thing that i was looking at is the difference between proteoglycans and glycoproteins because i was getting mixed up and i didn't know what the difference was turns out it's just the kind of carbohydrate to protein ratio mm. as i suppose the most basic definition and so glycoproteins have less carbohydrates which are sugars i don't know if we mentioned that uh, to protein ratio um yeah and glycosylation as you mentioned is very important um and i found that some genetic defects in genes encoding proteins involved or you know proteins involved in glycosylation and other gene products involved you it's embryonic lethal so if you have defects in these genes it's just not compatible with life and the embryo doesn't survive which just shows how important glycosylation is um which is obviously like i said since it's something that was barely mentioned or something that i had never really studied kind of surprised me and that glycosylation has so many roles in in the immune response which i'm sure killian will go into yeah, you know can't wait. um yeah in, in involved in cancer involved in cell death and cell proliferation um and so in terms of cancer um the sort of when you look at a cell it looks oncofetal that's sort of a term which i had never come across but kind of interesting onco sort of oncogenic genes are ones that when mutated can lead to cancer and fetal obviously fetus kind of childlike well not childlike fetal like and so when you have these oncofetal um genes or when it's mutated basically that's sort of the pattern that emerges the cell goes back to being like a fetal cell mm. because the reason you can get these cancers is when the the genes involved in proliferation and cell differentiation aren't controlled as they should do and if they go back to being fetal like then a cell which should only say turn into i don't know a skin cell may deviate from that and and may change and mm. and this can lead to cancer and i i never realized that glycosylation had a role to play in that you know um and in terms of mucins involved in cancer um because obviously that's how you discover glycosylation that mucins can act as a biomark of cancer that if you have this change in glycosylation of these mucins and, and a different pattern that you can say okay this cell is healthy and this cell is actually cancerous which is again something that i had had never known about um but yeah, just I suppose that's just a brief overview of that. And <clears throat> sort of a high level of mucin production is seen in adenocarcinomas. And these are cancers that start in mucus producing cells, because obviously mucins and mucus go hand in hand. Um, and that the mucin gel can sort of capture different molecules that are, I don't know, within that tube or within whatever it is, the gut or and things like that and and it can indicate whether there's a breach in, in the mucin layer and things like that and it can signal to the immune system which again <laughs> shout out to Killian <laughs> for the immune yeah. system uh yeah I actually so I I'll probably I could I go into a, like a tiny bit of uh detail into like my research project yeah, yes, please. so the way so one thing that I, I didn't really realize at the beginning. So my project was looking at um, microRNAs, 
They're just these RNAs that are quite small. They don't code anything, uh, but they're really, really important. And again, post-translational work. Um, and my research project was looking at microRNAs targeting mucins. Mm -hmm. And I, there's not a lot of research on that, um, except in, in cancer. And I was looking at it from the perspective of inflammatory bowel disease. So it's just inflammation of the colon. And the more I was looking at it, the more I couldn't find anything. And then somehow I, that, that, that's when I saw glycosylation. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that some microRNAs target um, messenger RNAs, which, which you know, they, they are the ones that encode the genes. So some microRNAs will target messenger RNAs of specific enzymes, mm -hmm. which which are the enzymes which attach these sugars onto the protein backbone of a mucin. So if that, so if that enzyme is targeted, it's, it's going to be degraded because that's what yeah. microRNAs do. So if that enzyme is degraded, no sugar gets added. Therefore, the mucin does not work. So <laughs> gone. And then the whole point of that was that then you notice that the mucus was actually getting thinner. Yeah. And it like you said, Amandine, the um, epithelial barrier then was kind of becoming vulnerable because it, it wasn't as protected anymore. And um, some bacteria, some species will rely on mucins as a nutrient source or adhesion sites. And then if that's, if those sugars are depleted, then some of those bacterial species might also get depleted, which then could reduce this competition between like the bad gut bacteria and the good good ba gut bacteria which allows then pathogenic bacteria to thrive thin mucus plus pathogenic bacteria is not a good idea <laughs> but yeah so that's really that's i find that quite interesting that yeah that is really interesting it links yeah. with everything yeah yeah actually yeah one thing um related to ibs that i was looking at um was that this observation that germ-free mice, so you can, this is like a thing that's sometimes found in biology where you have mice that are essentially bred and like from birth have no microbiome. So they have no interaction with any bacteria, any viruses, any anything. They're like completely sterile, if you want to use that word. And germ-free mice are way more likely to develop IBS. Um, and part of this reason um, is due to like different glycosylation because the, um, microbiome actually you know maintains healthy glycosylation as well because they found that this increased risk of ibs could be reversed in mice if you just added polysaccharide to their guts so Wait, it's not how just do they, how do they add that to their guts like in their diet or? i assume it was through diet yeah okay right. um so yeah so if you have car carbohydrate in your microbiome it actually trains your immune system um like to sort of have more of a balance so does this idea in immunology it's sort of a, a bit old now but it's, it's there's still a bit of it where it's like th1 or th2 type immune responses and um so essentially the uh glycosylation can maintain this balance between the two so it means you don't have too much inflammation but you don't have too much immune suppression um either so okay like a lot of things it's about balance wait which one is which th1 is which inflammation well it it, it does depend on the context as well oh, but usually okay. th2 is associated with like inflammation and allergy and that kind of thing right um but uh yeah it is very context dependent yeah so, I, just because i'd never heard of that before th1 or th2 yeah because the thing is now there's like all sorts of different uh things like there's th17 and all that as well so that's that's for a whole other episode. yeah no <laughs> um, <laughs> never mind but um 
Now, are they, they're T helper cells, yes? Yes, those, those are for T helper cells, TH1, TH2, and TH17. And then there's other THs as well, but they're the dominant ones. TH for helper. Yeah. Listen, we're connecting <laughs> all the dots. <laughs> I probably should have said that. I keep forgetting sometimes that other people don't like. Yeah, no, I didn't know anything about that. Yeah, no, I haven't a clue. Um, but yeah, uh, glycobiology is really important in the immune system in general. Like there are like specific receptors on immune cells that recognize particular glycans mm. and um, pathogens and cancer, like you mentioned, um, have glycans and tumors and pathogens can actually use these glycans, these sugars as a shield against the immune system. So for example, you have HIV, which uses sugars to protect uh, this protein called GP120, which is the protein that it uses to enter our immune cells. So without the, if, so if this protein was exposed and our immune system could easily see it, we could destroy HIV. Um, and it wouldn't be such a problem. But because they have sugars covering this very well, mm. that's part of the reason why our immune systems find it very hard to actually attack mm. the crucial part of the virus. Um, and there are also some sugars that can inhibit immune function um, and others uh, can activate immune function. And some of them actually like help the viruses enter cells and um, through their interactions with receptors. So they could have a protein that's covered in a certain sugar that a cell might like to pick up um, and then once it picks up that sugar, it accidentally picks up the virus too. Mm. Um, so there are actually some successful antiviral drugs like Tamiflu, which was like a major uh, early antiviral, which treats influenza by actually removing the glycoproteins um, from your cells, um, which stops influenza being able to get in because it actually attaches to your glycoproteins. So yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's all, yeah, it's all very linked. I did see a bit about mucins being... Um, like so they can obviously be attached in the cell they have like a transmembrane domain mm. so they're stuck within the cell or they can be um, just floating about in the extracellular matrix or whatever and that they act as ligands so they would bind to a receptor yeah. which would lead to some sort of response within the cell exactly yeah and sometimes yeah. that can be activatory or inhibitory depending on the yeah. cell and all of that so um, you have as well tumors because they sometimes cancer produces so many proteins because it's replicating so fast. Um, what you can have is it produces proteins that don't look normal because they don't have the right post-translational modification. So for example, you mentioned membrane proteins, a lot of membrane proteins. So like what's on the outside of your cell and what's yeah. easy for the immune system to see. A lot of those are like isolated in particular, yeah. um, but tumors because they're producing so many proteins so fast, sometimes they're, glycosylation machinery, the things that like the enzymes that add these sugars can't keep up with the amount of protein they're producing. So they start putting proteins in the outside of their cells that don't have the sugars they should have. Right. And then the immune system can recognize that. It goes, wait a second, that does not look like it normally yeah. looks. And, and it can attack, which is actually then a, a possible approach in treating certain types of cancer. Um, there's this antigen MUC1, um, um, which um, tumor cells can uh, overproduce and the glycosylation is different because they're it, it can't keep up so yeah. you can actually use this in potential cancer vaccines to train your immune system to recognize like a, to get a really strong response when it sees this protein that doesn't have the right sugars because mm -hmm. then you know it's cancerous yeah. um so th yeah that's really interesting and actually um like e even the components of our immune system the antibodies which are a major component um they're glycosylated in a very particular way and it's yeah. really hard to, to replicate this in pharmaceutical settings. So you might've heard like monoclonal antibodies. They're a big thing. We, we talked about them in an earlier yeah. episode, but they're a big thing for treating even like things like COVID for treating viral infections. Cause you can essentially 
give someone antibodies, even if they're not making them themselves. Uh, it's a very expensive treatment, but it can work very well. Actually, right, this is a right. side note, but what's it called when you give someone immunity like that? Like, you know, the way... Oh, yeah, that's passive immunization. Passive. Okay, yeah. so I was trying to think of the word the other day and I couldn't yeah. remember. So active immunization <laughs> yeah. is when you're producing your own beneficial immune responses against something. And passive mm -hmm. immunization is sort of when you give someone the yeah. tools that their immune system should be making, but yeah. isn't for one reason or another. Right. Sometimes yeah. it's because the pathogen is really good at stopping your immune system from making mm -hmm. them. Um, so, uh, yeah, so without the right glycosylation patterns, antibodies don't function properly. So in a pharmaceutical company, they have to be really careful about how they make these antibodies. Um, because if they don't make them the same way that human cells do, they'll look different to our cells. Yeah. Uh, to our antibodies, sorry. So our immune system can actually recognize the antibodies and say, what's this? This, this doesn't have the normal sugars. And then you can actually get immune responses against the things that are meant to help you, um, which is not very good. Um, and also they won't be functioning properly if they don't have the right sugars. And uh, the sugars they have around this linker region in the antibodies, so the antibody is like a Y shape. So if you think of the middle of that, that middle point, um, the sugars around that protected because that would be a weak point otherwise pathogens try to chop that because if you chop that linker region antibody yeah. doesn't really do anything anymore mm. um so sugars are important in protecting it and for its function um so some pathogens have actually evolved the ability to produce enzymes that remove sugars from antibodies and from other immune components so that they can hide uh from the immune system that's pretty cool i didn't know yeah. that's yeah. so cool yeah because i was looking up like you know stuff that glycosylation is involved in and i did see the antibody thing come up mm. and i was like well killian's definitely going to cover that <laughs> since that's his area but um yeah i i didn't realize it was along the linker region because i just saw the picture of the y and where yeah. the sugars were and i was like hmm i wonder why so now it's nice to know yeah what it, it's actually used for but yeah, um, so, so yeah. yeah in pharma companies they they've tried loads of approaches for making monoclonal antibodies using like bacteria or like yeast or different yeah. things but it seems that unless you use actual mammalian cells, so like something from a mammal like us, it's very hard to replicate the same glycosylation pattern. Do so they use hamster cells for that. Yes, I think hamster cells are, are a common thing. Yeah. You're right. Because they have a weird name when you put them chimeric, is it chimeric hamster ovary or something hamster ovaries? Oh, and it's yeah. Like I can't remember the name. Yeah. Yeah. I just remember because it was like Cho, and I was like, that's strange. <laughs> yeah, so they're increasingly trying to use the closest thing to human cells. So sometimes yeah. they use like genetic modifications to try to make things more like human, or at least for the functions that oh, yeah. they need. Um, so they're called humanized. Um, but yeah, it's it's really interesting. Yeah, because yeah, yeast usually is kind of grand because they're eukaryotic. Mm. But um, yeah. Yeah, but they're not mammalians. So that's the I know, that's the I problem. know they're not. That's that's why they don't have the exact same. So yeah. for a lot of things, they're really good. But, but not for not for this, unfortunately. Yeah. And I was kind of looking into um, this thing. I, do you know what? Now I'm like, I can't remember how it's related to the topic at all. <laughs> Foot two, that gene. I Oh, oh, because it adds on sugars. That's why. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I think <laughs> it was, it, was it Marina who told us about that gene? Yeah. 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 It's, so <laughs> Foot two is like the enzyme. Well, yeah. no, Foot two is the gene which encodes an enzyme, which then adds these um, fucose residues onto proteins. Yeah, I have the whole name written here. Here we go. Galactoside alpha bracket one, two, close bracket, fucosyl transferase two. There we go, guys. I love Rolls that. Right that's what it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, so FUT2, F-U-T-2. 
too. Um, and so this gene can be inherited in an autosomal dominant manner. Um, well, I mean, any gene could be, could be, but my point is just that, uh, yeah, if you have one functioning copy of the gene, that's all you need for it to work properly. For some things, you might need two functioning copies, this grand, if you have one. Uh, and so if you have two non-functioning copies, that's when an issue, well, it's not really an issue, just a difference arises. And so if you have this gene for two, you are what's known as a secretor. And if you have two non-functioning genes, you are a non-secretor. And this just means that you will secrete your ABO antigens. So people know blood type, whatever, ABO, mm. and the antigen, I don't know, you know, it's a thing <laughs> that antibodies bind to. Um, but yeah, you can secrete your antigens into in bodily fluids like your saliva, your urine, your tears. Um, mm. And if you're a non-secretor, you don't. And I was trying to find like, what is the point of this? Like, what is the difference between being a secretor and a non-secretor? And, and what does it even mean? Yeah. To be honest, I don't think they know that much. The main thing I found was that if you're a non-secretor, you have reduced susceptibility to neurovi neurovirus. I think mm. it's like the winter vomiting bug or something. Yeah. And so they're kind of looking into this, but there's not really much out there mm. well i couldn't find it anyways yeah, so I just, I, yeah maybe yeah. it could be something to do with the antigens and their similarities to certain viruses and things like that yeah 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 and then i was i started thinking oh yeah so then i started thinking you know the way babies can get passive immunity that's why i was trying to think of the word yes. passive because from drinking uh, their mother's breast milk because yes these antigens can be secreted in there and i was like oh i wonder if that's involved in anything but i mean and the antibodies isn't. crucially as well there are certain yeah, antibodies that's why, that can also, because i was thinking yeah. of antibodies at the time yeah. Listen, all the immunology words sound the exact same. Antigen, <laughs> antibody, adjuvant. It's difficult to keep up. It really yeah. is. But anyways, um, yeah, yeah. The the, uh, the foot too. When I saw the non-secretors, so mm. there's like some advantages to being a non-secretor apparently, yeah. and there's like disadvantages on and advantages on both sides. Mm -hmm. But um, in researching inflammatory bowel disease non-secretors are more susceptible to Crohn's disease which is a right. type of inflammatory bowel disease mm -hmm. and they also did what's called a 16s sequence analysis which is essentially looking at your microbiome so it's comparing your gut microbiome um like of a healthy person and a person who is a non-secretor mm -hmm. and they saw that it differs so whenever they see that it's like oh my gosh, it, it causes a change. Yeah. Can, this, mm -hmm. can this be the reason? But it's often like multifactorial. Yeah. But um, yeah, they also find that. They find that in humans and in uh, mice. So that was quite um, like, like interesting. Yeah. I think it's 80% of people are secretors. And it's going to ask for the breakdown. Yeah, 20% yeah, are, are non-secretors, I think, from yeah. some random website yeah. I found. I was going to so, say, that uh, could be like a cool thing people start asking each other. It's like, forget star signs and stuff. Like, are, are you a secretor or non-secretor? I need secretor? to know. There's a full moon last night, I think. So uh, watch out. Watch out, secretors. <laughs> <laughs> There's a full yeah. moon last night. You know but what I that actually, means. I would like to know, does it mean anything more than, you know, like what? Who? I don't know. I just feel like there is something more to it. And obviously I'm sure they'll do more studies into it because it surely can't be something really small. Like, not that it's really Maybe. small to have Crohn's disease. I just mean that, I don't know. They need, they haven't found anything 
super proper like causative yet I don't think yeah because yeah. um, I think be interesting there's like there's other um like foot genes I think it's foot two is just one of them yeah there's so, foot one as well okay that yeah. makes sense in the <laughs> <end>. <laughs> it's involved. I could have no, guessed that <laughs> no I think it's involved in in the expression of this is what I have written there h antigen the precursor of abo antigens so mm-hmm. that's what that's involved in yeah. and then uh, the foot two is is involved in the secretion of it okay yeah because so they they add this fucose residue mm-hmm. and i i often find that like well no i don't often find <laughs> when i'm reading i see that um a fucose is like a terminal residue so it kind of like ends the chain however right. i i'm not sure um but if there's, also, cool. if there's also foot one you know i'm not I, i'm not really sure about i don't the think specifics. oh yeah maybe it is i was going to say maybe it's not involved in glycosylation but maybe it is um yeah because i'm it's, sure that's yeah. what the t the the f and the t stand for well, oh my god the f and the u stand for the- <laughs> yeah so it's so it's not called right. fucos so sorry oh my god i gave it away there it's not called glycosylation it's called fucosylation yeah i gave it away Whoa is it is it actually if it's yeah. a different sugar it has a different name i think the overall is glycosylation but i have seen sialylation oh right? yes i've seen that too <laughs> which is like the addition of like sialic acid i've also seen oh god i've also seen another one but i can't remember yeah those are just like more specific versions aren't they for like yeah. a specific type of sugar that you're adding exactly yeah they're exactly. just making us learn more words yeah typical <laughs> That's, it's always like that in biology but they do kind of sound the same like yeah which is kind of handy yeah but um yeah <laughs> yeah i i have a, a a bit of a, a bit of a rant on polysaccharide vaccines if you guys want to get into that yeah off you go yeah um because i don't know if you guys know i kind of like vaccines kind of cool <laughs> what really um, yeah so um so it's sort of intro to that is like that so bacterial meningitis is uh, like a very serious disease, especially in like very young children, like newborns. Mm-hmm. And it's mainly caused by three bacteria, Streptococcus pneumoniae, uh, haemoph- haemophilus or haemophilus, I don't know, influenzae, uh, type B, or uh, <laughs> I can't pronounce this at all. You do, you got uh, it. Neisseria meningitis. Yeah, Neisseria. And then, okay, nice area. Okay, close enough. Well done, Kilian. That was very Thank impressive. You. Yeah, I, pro- I probably just should have said three bacteria and not. No, no we want to know what they are. Yeah. That's true. Uh, so, all three of these have a polysaccharide capsule. So, um, the sort of the outside of them is completely covered by sugars. Mm-hmm. Um, and this became like the main target for um, vaccines against them. So, it makes sense. If this is all on the outside, if you can get the immune system to recognize it, great. Um, but uh, the thing is, these like sugars, polysaccharide antigens, you can call them carbohydrates or polysaccharides, it's sort of interchangeable. Um, they were long thought to be uh, like T-cell independent antigens, which means that like your T-cells uh, can't recognize them properly. Because for a T-cell to recognize an antigen, it needs to be sort of displayed to it um, by um, another- MHC. MHC, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, for example, like your dendritic cell or something like that would have to say, okay, hey, T cell, look what I found on, on my MHC. Um, so, yeah, and essentially it was thought that T cells couldn't recognize these sugars because they couldn't actually be presented by MHC. So, that you have to rely on uh, B cells. The thing is, if a B cell recognizes an antigen 
and a T cell can't also recognize it. It can only produce a certain type of antibody and it produces sort of quite like weak amounts. So it produces an antibody called IgM. Um, so uh, it, it's not really as good at like dealing with a massive infection, for example. It's sort of good for general control, but not for completely eliminating something. So um, essentially you need the T cells to also be involved if you want a really good antibody response. So that's what a lot of vaccines try to do, get the T and B cells on side uh, to get the proper antibody response or the proper uh, T, just T cell response, whatever it is. So, but the thing is, if you have a polysaccharide vaccine, so you have these sugars in a vaccine, um, they, they, can act, they can't activate the T cells, but they can activate other components of your immune system like complement. So that helps your innate immune system like recognize pathogens and destroy them, that sort of thing. So they're not, you know, completely useless, these polysaccharide vaccines. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing is, they usually don't provoke very strong immune responses. Um, and sometimes the problem is some sugars on bacteria look quite similar to sugars on our cells. So the odd time, it can actually lead to an autoimmune disease after you get one of these polysaccharide vaccines. So it's sort of... So this area of polysaccharide vaccines was kind of like a bit almost, you know, dodgy. They weren't the best vaccines because sometimes yeah. they did these nasty side effects. Um, but more recently, there's been a bit of a revolution in the whole area because um, it's been shown that some carbohydrates can actually drive T cell responses, which was never thought of before. So a very small uh, proportion of sugars are uh, switterionic, they're called. So they have like... Um, a charge that's like sometimes positive, sometimes negative. It sort of goes between them. So it's called a Zwitter ion, ZW. Um, like that's how you start it, a Zwitter ion. It, it's, it looks weird. But uh, anyway, it looks like MHC can actually hold um, these sugars with the, when they have this charge. So that it means can. T cells. It, it can. can. Yeah. Can. Okay. So that means if you have one of these weird sugars that has this alternating positive and negative charge, then the T cell can recognize it. So um, and then another thing that, that uh, was thought of was, well, what if, because MHC we know is really good at like presenting proteins to the immune system, that's what does in every vaccine yeah. um, and every infection and stuff. What if you just joined a sugar to a protein? You just like linked them both. So this is called like a glycoconjugate or like just conjugation when you're joining two things together. So the idea is that you'll be able to join a protein with the sugar that you want the immune system to recognize, because for example, you're trying to go against these uh, bacteria that have this sugar capsule that causes meningitis. So what if you attach the sugar to a protein, put that in the vaccine, and it looks like then you can get strong responses from T cells and B cells. So because does the MHC like hold the protein? Exactly. Which the has the little sugar. Exactly, right, yeah. So the MHC holds the protein, and then the sugar is sticking out the top because the MHC can't hold it. So then the, the T cells can recognize the sugar is the idea. Um, mm. I, I think from looking into it, I couldn't find if the T cells can definitely recognize non-zwitterionic sugars as well, but I think that's something that's being looked into. It's definitely something the researchers seem to think uh, is possible from the reviews and stuff that I was reading. Yeah. But yeah, it looks like that, that could be the key to you know many of these vaccines. I think there have, there have been lots of... Um, polysaccharide vaccines for different uh, forms of meningitis that are polysaccharide based and some of them are using this conjugation method and are finally having strong immune responses against these sugars so are therefore preventing um, 
meningitis, which is obviously a really serious disease. So yeah, yeah I just thought amazing. that that was quite interesting that sugars were a bit of an issue, but now it's kind of yeah. being solved. I actually wanted to ask, do you know what vaccines originally were the polysaccharide ones or what ones like because you were saying some of them didn't really work that well or uh yeah these were for the these uh, meningitis oh the same they're for the same thing yeah right yeah as far as i know the early ones didn't work too well and has some other immune reactions and then uh, they've been able to optimize them since then and now what they're trying to do is they have vaccines that have several sugars in one um so they're sort of training your immune system against several different like serotypes they're called because the bacteria obviously like it's not just one sugar because bacterial evolution is quite fast. You have, depending on the region, different bacteria, kind of different types of sugars. So we're trying to vaccinate against as many as possible to stop just one becoming dominant. So for Mm. example, in Ireland, we might have bacteria with sugar A is the one that's, you know, most common. So if we give people the vaccine, that's great. People will never get meningitis from, um, the one with sugar A. But the yeah. thing is then the sugar B bacteria has a new niche because there's no sugar A around. So it's the one that starts to become dominant. So you ch- need to try to wipe out as many of them as possible at a single time, rather than just wiping out one at a time and, and let, letting the other ones run rampant. So, Evolution. Yeah. Would evolve. Exactly. So, so. Does, does Zwitter mean, I did German, but <laughs> I can't really remember if it means twins I don't know. Yeah, that I, sounds legit from I, I have I no idea, to be honest. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like it could be. Maybe. I don't do German. I've never studied German. Um, no, I don't know anything about Zwitter ions. I know the name. That is all. Yeah, same. Hmm. I feel like I should know more about them. <laughs> I'm sure there was a point in my life where I did actually know what they were and what they did. Yeah. But maybe first year chemistry. For yeah, me, that's that what I'm it. thinking of. Definitely first year chemistry. <laughs> but I don't know it anymore oops it's fine i know other stuff (laughs) yeah um, yeah i think that's kind of everything that we have to say isn't it or does anyone have anything else to add um (laughs) yeah that's i guess that's kind of it i i guess i just never i don't think it was highlighted enough yeah in our in our science degree this that Mm. this this whole other area I guess because we did so many other things that they kind of integrated glycobiology within yeah. it, but I guess it never stood out and I never realized that mm. it was such a huge deal. And it, it's kind of a part of almost everything, yeah. like genetics, microbiology, immunology, like everything. Yeah. Like yeah. now it's a thing in cancer research and immuno- immunology research. So it's yeah. so cool. Yeah, I really like the visual of the flying over the trees in, the, in your cells. <laughs> because yeah. you're yeah. right the sugar like when, trees yeah, yeah it's like sugar Willy Wonka. Yeah. <laughs> yes you are yeah you're in the factory yeah. <laughs> so yeah that's true um <clears throat> because yeah because you do see like i mean i suppose proteins kind of stand out to be the most important or you know they're kind of flagged as the most important molecule in well that's what we learn about it anyway well I suppose because genes code for like RNA and yeah. then proteins so maybe it's different in other courses but um yeah no I definitely find it's the same we don't um talk too much about things that aren't proteins an awful lot of the time yeah um, we, had, fair, we had one lecturer who was stuff. really obsessed with the glycobiology stuff so that's how I learned some of that stuff but uh apart from that most people mm. just don't talk about it too much yeah because yeah. like the proteins are the ones that add the sugar so 
yeah. you never really think yeah. and that's what we would learn and then you don't actually think well what's the point of having the sugar there mm. um yeah but yeah and okay. I guess I guess it's important then like because you're like that maybe maybe this is why carbohydrates are the most important things that we need to eat because we need to like ingest these to be able yeah. to then like make them for ourselves so mm. yeah and because yeah, they do they act as energy though as well they can be broken down yeah I think yeah. that was something they, that I saw about mucins acting as even as trophic factors so kind of like attracting microorganisms so this would be like in the gut or whatever yeah um, and I couldn't I tried looking more into it I, I couldn't find that much but I mean I think it's because it kind of the the carb the carbon and the nitrogen in it can act as as a source of energy yeah yeah I mean, I definitely feel like yeah, pathogens and tumors and that sort of thing could definitely, you know, use sugars hanging around for their energy because they're notorious for ramping up their metabolism to try to produce more energy, more proteins, all of that kind of thing. So yeah, metabolism is a very complicated thing. I, I was thinking at one stage, maybe we could do an episode on it, but I think without diagrams, it's, it's so hard. Yeah. Maybe we could give it a go sometime, I, but it's, <laughs> it's tough. That's because this is it. I think they were trying to image this glycome like yeah. image our glycome but it's you can't like attach a green fluorescent protein on it because it's not a protein yeah. Um, yeah. it doesn't work that way so you have to do it through like metabolic ways yeah i don't know much about it but yeah. that's yeah. actually really interesting because yeah i never thought of that yeah how do they do that yeah so they're so, trying to see like where the sugars end up and stuff like that yeah they, they want to see like what specific sugars are on what cell or like you yeah know, it, so, so is, there, is there no specific stain for sugars or what's the i i think there is there are so many tests developed now and they're kind of like they're like it's a chemical thing like it's like chemical reactants but they can't react with other things so it's really specific work yeah i'm not really sure maybe spectra spectrophotometry i saw something about that as well when i was looking and actually i think i might be wrong but i'm pretty sure if you crystallize a protein you get rid of the sugars like you can't crystallize a protein that has sugars on so actually our idea from biochemistry like we do this thing called crystallization where we like can actually see the structure of a protein it's not perfect because it actually doesn't have the sugars anymore when we do that as far as i know so we have this sort of incomplete picture of of how um proteins work because we can't see all the attachments to it which are obviously also important i saw that the glycosylation can like it promotes some protein folding and can improve the stability and even like the regulatory function of the proteins as well yeah which i guess yeah yeah. we should mention it's uh, o glycosylation happens in the golgi apparatus Mm. which is in the cytoplasm of every cell yeah and then Mm. n glycosylation happens in the um er so I, why can't I remember Endo, what, endoplasm, endo, yeah. reticulum yeah. Oh, that's a difficult word I yeah. was like I remember reticulum what's the first <laughs> that was me the other day I said phosphorylation and then I was like I can't remember the word pho- like the, the group that attaches it so I just ignored it completely and waited for Killian to be like you mean this and I was like yeah that's what I meant yes um but yeah no because I did see that different mutants because I don't know why we were talking about oh yeah you were trying to picture where the 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 different sugars are that different mucins with different um uh like uh, what are they called glycan structures um are found in different places so some of them are found in say every cell type but then some are very specific to that cell and i'm I'm not actually sure what makes it specific like what decides how a protein 
you know, gets this specific sugar structure added on. Yeah, um, I, I think that's something that I briefly referred to in the intro that there's so much heterogeneity that even the same protein can be yeah. differentially glycosylated in different ways. So I think compared to some other things which maybe have slightly tighter controls, maybe glycosylation is a little bit more, I don't, like random isn't the word, but you know, there might not be as much control on exactly what sugars are where, but as long as maybe a general structure is there, it should have roughly the same function. But then it's interesting that some of these different combinations that arise because of this, um, the, the differences in glycosylation could actually lead to like disease, as we were saying, or um, potential health benefits. So is there a way we could, you know, use glycosylation or control it better to, you know, help disease? Yeah, like that, that's a whole area as well. Yeah, that sounds really hard to it's figure out. So <laughs> difficult. Like uh, lots of lots of things in biology. Yeah, but that sounds very difficult. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We don't have people who just go, "Damn, that's hard." Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> what are you but, saying about yeah. my character? I'm joking. Um, like, but yeah, um, even the lecturer we had who was talking about Greco stuff, he was saying because it's so complex, even compared to the proteome, which is something that's extremely complex, he's like, it is an area that intimidates many people, even people who are yeah by these very tough topics because it's just so wide-reaching you know yeah. and and it has this like lack of control and that sort of thing so for, for many reasons it's something that scares a lot of people away from that kind of research in a way yeah I, I know just through kind of reading about this stuff so there's there's specific um like starter like when you start the chain this the glycan chain they're like to, to kind of characterize things they've they've split them up into four core like startups so it's like mm-hmm. core one through four and um like specific enzymes will add the core one structure and then a different enzyme will add like the core three structure and it's really different between humans and mice for example so a lot of mucins in the uh human uh like kind of human mucins are glycosylated with like a i think it's i think it's a core three so a lot of mucins have core three as their starter like linkage, mm. but then mice have a core one. So then that's kind of an issue because then it's like, oh, we have, to, human- them, we- yeah. we have to humanize them. Um, and yeah, so that it, I guess it does differ, but another problem with mouse studies. <laughs> oh my God. When you say like, that, I'm just like, how do we know anything? Like how, <laughs> how? I mean, I'm sure people have run into so many problems that, yeah, I don't yeah. know. I mean, mice teach us a lot of things, but it also teaches us a lot of incorrect things as well. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, it's tough. Because if we're saying like, oh, glycosylation is so important, blah, blah, blah. And then that's different in my... Maybe, the other thing is it could mean nothing. I mean, it probably does have a significant impact on something. But then I'm like, oh, but we're using mice to study all these other things and we're getting, you know, good results and we're learning stuff from it yeah they're so different i don't know yeah. it's just another, another reason it's important to like look at different model organisms or keep focusing on the development of these like organoids where you can like grow human oh, yeah. cells into organs and bigger structures because if we just have a like a dish full of cells it's very hard to get a big picture of what actually happens in a human mm. body so yeah yeah so that's probably the future moving away from mice and towards like basically growing human organs and stuff which is interesting um it is. and it would probably teach us a lot but again if you don't have the whole body there you know you could argue that there's still problems it might be closer to like you know the actual human body but unless you have the whole thing with like the brain having an impact on regulation and different organs interacting with each other it is very difficult to 
get a picture of these things without running human trials. But obviously, you can't run human trials for everything because that wouldn't be safe. So for the time being, mice it is. <laughs> mice. Mice and cells in a dish. That's that's uh, yeah. that's mostly what we've got. But organoids are kind of a thing now. They're, yeah. they're becoming more popular. Yeah. So. And we're like, we learn so much from it. It's not like, oh, we just have mice. Like, we learn yeah. so much from having yeah. mice and from having cells in a dish. So that's true. You know, yeah. they do have a big impact. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and fruit flies. They're, yeah, they're... fruit flies, the classic genetic model organism. Yeah, we, we... the good old Drosophila. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was yeah um, looking cause... at how they develop recently. Not yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they like they have the same number, almost the same number of genes as we do, right? Yeah, similar. Yeah, okay. yeah. No, well, this, but... yeah. <laughs> they do the same thing they do the same thing <laughs> yeah, they have the same like class and then sometimes we have say duplications or whatever of them but yeah okay. mostly the same because through when look when I was looking at like introduction to glycosylation that's what they, they were kind of trying to explain how like even though we might have the same number of genes similar number of yeah. genes yeah. as a fruit fly like because of these post-translational modifications like glycosylation I don't know if a fruit fly, I don't know how, to what extent a fruit fly would experience glycosylation. I don't know anything about that, <laughs> but um, like, that's the reason why we're such like higher organisms because of, I mean, not just post-translational modifications, but I think that's yeah. a, a big reason, right? Yeah. yeah. That we all have, we all code for the same things. Yeah, exactly. It's the post-translational modifications. It's also the timing of when genes are expressed, the like where they're expressed Um creates these different body plans and then how they function differently and yeah uh, i like that but i'm not gonna go into it since it's not the topic of this it's very yeah, cool we, we've I gone like a bit of a tangent yeah <laughs> but i do yeah. yeah i love that stuff that's really cool like spatial temporal expression or of gene expression control of gene expression yeah which i kind that's of cool. talked about when i talked about regulation of gene expression but anyways <laughs> different episode but yeah. yeah so i think that probably brings us to the end then yeah uh, yeah thanks, thanks so much, much for joining marina. us marina yeah thank you so much really for having me to talk to you <laughs> no it's so great to talk to you guys yeah, it's, thank it's you. great to have such a big fan of the show on yeah. the show <laughs> i am a huge fan <laughs> such a big fan um yeah yeah so this is gonna sound like set up but i, I swear marina is a fan she's not just I, saying that because she's on the show no really science <laughs> podcasts are my fave and then you know friends doing science podcasts it's it's a whole other level of excitement <laughs> <laughs> Thanks Great. so much. Well, thanks for Thank tuning you. in, everyone. Yeah. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.